turn to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is where we're going to be landing today. If you are uh, visiting with us, man, we're glad you're here. And if you need a Bible, uh, there should be some hardback black ones there in the chairs around you. You can grab one of those and use that to follow along with us. We'd love for you to do that. Uh, if you're online, welcome. Glad you're tuning in this morning. Grab your Bibles with us as well. And uh, as Nathaniel kind of said earlier, we are, we're in this series right now and in this theme, really, for our new year called Firm Foundation, and looking at what does it look like to truly build our lives on the firm foundation that is Jesus Christ and His Word. And, um, and not only our lives and our families, but also our church, right? We want our church to be founded on the Word of God. And so we've been walking through just some different aspects, some foundational pieces of who we are as a church. Right now we're walking through the pillars, um, or on the second pillar called Unashamed Adoration, and it's all about worship. And this is uh, one, of our, one of our primary things that we as a church have held dear from the very beginning, that we want to be about worshiping Jesus Christ the way that he wants to be worshiped. And uh, we're going to look at what that looks like today, what that means, and how that works for us as a church here from Psalm 95. So uh, Psalm 95 as we dig in. So I'm sitting there in Starbucks working on my sermon, and I hear this voice out of nowhere say, hey, are you guys like a military church or something? I was like, oh, I was like, maybe, maybe it's my, my, my physique. He's like, maybe this is like a military guy. I was like, yeah, that's probably not it. So I was like, well, I was like, well, I turned around, this guy's standing, he's like, I was like, why would you say that? And uh, he said that, 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 that thing on your shirt, and he was referring to our church logo that looks something like this, if you're familiar. Um, and, he, and I was like, oh, okay, fair. Um, I get it. I see it. Um, but that's not what it means. Uh, for us, this symbol, this logo is a reminder that we are always seeking to be what we call here a vertical church. Right? We call this the vertical chevron. And it's, uh, the, I remember, it's the reminder to us that everything that we do in our lives, everything that we do in our families, everything that we do in our church should be focused on God. That we want our eyes shifted vertical at all times. We don't want to get caught up in the horizontal things of this life, even in church, right? Church isn't about programs. It's not about preferences. It's not about this thing or that thing. It's not about me or you. We are here for Jesus, we're here to worship and glorify him like we just have been doing for the last 30 minutes, right? We want to be a vertical church, and that means giving him vertical worship. And so today we're going to talk about what is that and what does it look like, because in the Bible, the word worship literally means to bow down or to pay homage or adoration to someone or to something, and we are hardwired as humans to do this. We are hard, there's something in us that God created that longs to worship. Everyone worships. Every human on the planet worships something. We're all bowing down. We're all giving homage. We're all giving ourselves to something or to someone on a regular basis. And so as Christians, as followers of Christ, and specifically as members of Harvest Church, we want to do everything that we can to take that worship inside of us that's longing to get out and to point that vertically at the Lord and at the Lord alone. We just sang, Jesus, you alone, right? That's what we're talking about today. And we can collectively and consistently do this, when we can collectively and consistently do this as a church, that's when we see God's glory come down and fill his church and fill his people and revive our hearts in new and fresh ways. And that is the goal every Sunday when we gather together. 
And that's what Psalm 95 talks about here, that vertical worship rekindles our hearts for God's glory. That's our purpose. In gathering and coming and worshiping, it is to sit in the the glory of God and let that rekindle the fire in our hearts on a weekly basis for following Jesus. And so, as we dig into Psalm 95 today, I want to just kind of set it up, because if you're used to coming to Harvest, you know we're kind of... Uh, we, we kind of just do the same thing over and over again, all right? Pick a passage, walk through it verse by verse. What does it say? What do we do with that? But you have to be true to the genre when you do that. If you know anything about Psalms, there are actually just a whole bunch of songs or song lyrics, poems that were written for the, for the Hebrew people. And so a lot of times, you know, songs and poems, they're not written the same way that like letters are written, right? Like where you make a point and then you make another point and then you make another point and they kind of build on each other logically. Songs and poems oftentimes will have like major themes that kind of run all the way through the scripture, right? All the way through the passage. You kind of have to trace that theme through the poem to understand the whole idea of what they're getting at. So that's what we're going to do today as we walk through Psalm 95. We're going to trace three major themes that kind of flow through the entire passage and appeal here to worship. And so I'm going to read the whole thing to start, and we're going to go back and pull out these three themes and see what we can learn about worship today. So start with me in verse 1. You can follow along. It says, O come... Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways." Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right, a couple themes here that we're pulling out. Number one, we worship because God is above us. We worship because God is above us. In this psalm, we see several different names or characteristics of God that are pulled out for us to remind us who it is that we worship. But it starts in verse 1 with this word, Lord. If you notice there, look in your text, the word Lord there is in all capital letters. You see that where it's in all caps? And some of you probably already know this, but when you study the Bible, especially the Old Testament, anytime you see Lord in all caps, that's not just like a generic title or generic kind of name for God. That's a specific name translated from the Hebrew, which is Y-H-W-H. All right, in Hebrew, they don't really do vowels. And so this was the, how they spelled it, Y-H-W-H. And today, we call that the, the uh, tetragrammaton which was the original name that was given by God to Moses when he's first talking to Moses about going back and rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember that story? Like, he's like, hey, I want you to go back and get them and pull them out. And he's like, all right, they don't like me, (laughs) first of all. So who should I tell them is sending me to do this? And his response is this. He says, I am who I am. He says, I am. That's, that's all he gives him. And that is translated here with the Y-H-W-H. He says, tell them that I am sent you. And in giving Moses that name to tell to the Israelites, this represents here God's unique position 
as being the only being who is self-existent and self-sufficient. Only God is I am with no explanation, right? He is dependent on no one. All creation is dependent on him. And so when we see this word Lord in all caps, that's what that's talking about, right? And this is where we get the name for us today when we say Yahweh, it comes from these letters. We've added some vowels in so we know how to say it because we don't do no vowels in English, right? Like that's not our thing. So we call him Yahweh, and this is the sacred covenant name that he gave to Israel to know him personally. And interestingly enough, Jesus that we talk about and worship today as well, his name in Hebrew is also Yeshua, meaning Yahweh saves. And so it's a picture that God himself, the personal God of Israel, came down in the form of Jesus Christ to save his people. And so the God that we worship today is the same God that they've always worshipped as the chosen people of God, and we worship him now through the person of Jesus Christ, but the point he's making here is that he has always has been and he always will be Yahweh, the great I am. So that's how the psalmist starts, he's like, hey, here's who we're coming to worship, by the way, the self-existent great God of the universe, but then he goes on, he says, and he is our rock. Rock is that imagery, right, of solid and strong, and steady. We've been talking a lot about that. We've been talking about our, our firm foundation, that God is our firm foundation. He is unchanging through the ages. Hebrews says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he is the faithful one to all of his people, and we can always count on that. He goes on to say that he's also the great God and great king. So the psalmist qualifies the names of God twice in one verse with the word great. To emphasize that he is the greatest among all these other people that, that, and things that people might be looking to worship or to follow. He is the greatest. There is none higher or greater than he is. And he is the great God and king. Both of those titles matter. God, meaning he, is the spirit, he rules over the spiritual realm. King, meaning he rules over the physical realm. That all of the universe, that all of everything that we can see and everything that we cannot see, that he is over all of it. Specifically here, he's emphasizing for the others around that he is over all of these lesser gods. All these idols that they have created. You see, all the nations around Israel, they all had their own different gods that they worshipped, that they had created. But in their minds, their gods were regional gods. They were just the God of this area, or this area, or over this thing, or that thing. They had no category for a God who was over everything. And that's exactly who Yahweh was. So the psalmist is emphasizing that he is the true God over everything. And then he says this, he says, he is our maker. We don't use that word maker a lot today, we use more of the word creator. right? That he is the creator of all things. And he emphasizes that by saying that all these things are in his hands. Think about when you hold something in your hand, right? If you can hold it in one hand, like you have, complete, you have complete control over whatever that is, right? And this is emphasizing God's power and his control. He says that he has utter control over everything because he created it, because he's the maker, and because he sustains it. The depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, the sea, the dry land, they all belong to him. And by extension, we all belong to him because we were created in his image. 
Sometimes we forget that. That the first primary reason that God has power and authority over our lives is not because we choose him, not because we say yes to him, it's because he created us in his image to worship and follow him. He has the power to accomplish all these things, which means he also has the power to accomplish anything in our lives, even the stuff that seem impossible to us. See, that word impossible doesn't apply to God. It only applies to us. Because he's the creator of all things. He is unlimited. And then finally, he brings out that God is also a shepherd. Now, he doesn't use that title here, but notice the phrases that he says. He says, we are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. Right? Those two phrases are important. First of all, the pasture, his pasture emphasizes his provision for us. That everything that we need, everything that we have, everything that that comes to us comes from his pasture, his provision. That he's the one giving us what we need. And secondly, it comes from his hand. That that his hand is what protects us, just like a shepherd protects his sheep. His hand protects us, he guides us, he leads us, he defends us, he watches over us as his own beloved sheep. Now, Notice here what the psalmist is doing with this list. He just told us that the preexistent, unchanging, all-powerful king of all creation also knows us and loves us and cares for us. That he is both all of those things that we can only begin to fathom and also right here with us to lead us as our shepherd. That is why we worship him. That's why we worship him alone. Because nobody else fits that resume. You know, one of the things that that we've seen kind of rise up in the last few years, in recent years, is emotional support animals. You guys have seen these, you've heard about these, right? And the idea behind this concept is that having said animal helps me emotionally cope with my life. That I can't function throughout the day. I can't keep an emotional stability without having this animal there to, to help me and to, to, to do this for me. And because of this, because people feel like they, they ha- can't live without this animal, they have fought in court multiple times to get to take these animals wherever, on an airplane, to a sporting event, to a store, whatever the thing is, right? Because they have to have them with them. And I saw a story about this just this last couple of weeks. Maybe you guys, some of you might have seen this. It was a story about Joseph and his emotional support animal, Wally Gator. That's right. His emotional support animal is an alligator that sleeps in his bed and eats from his hand. And Joe says, Joseph says that Wally has gotten him through all kinds of things emotionally, through the death of several family members, through cancer that he's battled with. And so he has a, a special place, obviously, for Wally. And, and what we find is when these situations happen, many of these owners are so connected and so invested in this emotional support animal, that they actually will feed them and treat them and care for them better than they even do for any other human in their life. Sometimes better than they do for themselves. 
because it's so vital and important to them. In fact, I think we could even go as far to say um, that they love them. They honor them. They exalt them above the place that they were created to be. Right? You see, these animals, every animal, is clearly below us. I'm not saying they're unimportant. I'm not saying they're not, like, God created them, so they're here. That's great. But they're not humans. They're animals. And God meant them to be animals. These, this animal, Gator, this, is Wally still up here? Wally, he, Wally is dependent on Joseph, not the other way around, Right? Like, without Joseph, he doesn't get fed, he doesn't get cared. Like, the dependency is not the other way. Because the animal is below him. And a lot of times when we get in these situations, the emotions that we attribute to, it could be an animal, it could be anything, right? We do this with all kinds of stuff. It's not just animals. But the emotion that we attribute to this thing that is below us isn't coming from anything that they actually do or say or think consciously. Like, Wally's not like, oh, man, I'm so glad I'm here to comfort Joseph today. He's not thinking that. Those emotions come from us taking an emotional feeling that we get from their presence and then pushing that on to them as if it's something that they create or are able to sustain. And they're just not. And we as humans, we do this with all types of things in our lives. And what this reveals is that everything else that we are tempted to worship in this world is actually below us. It's not above us. All these other things, they're below us. And yet we take them and we exalt them to a place where we're actually worshiping them and using them and following them as if they're not. And the reason we do this, the reason people want to worship things that are below them instead of the God who is above them is because when it's below me, then I actually get to choose. And I get to control and I get to possess and use and manipulate the thing that becomes the object of my worship. And so ultimately then I'm still playing God. And there are things that are flawed and they're broken and they're temporary and they're ultimately empty. And at the end of the day, will not sustain whatever it is you think you're getting from them. This could be wealth. This could be sports. Fashion. Relationships with other people. Could be food. Could be sex. Could be alcohol. Could be drugs. Could be the environment in general. Could be your work or your business could be comfort, whatever it is that you are leaning on, that you're depending on, that you're putting above you as if it's not there, you won't survive. You've elevated something that's actually below you to a place of worship that it's not fit to carry. All these things were created for us or by us, and so therefore they are not worthy of our worship. And yet, we bow to them with our time and our energy. We pay homage to them with our money. We adore them with our deepest desires, and we turn ourselves over to these things to consume us. Why? 
Why do we worship things that are so unworthy? It's because sin has broken our worship drive. We have it in us. It's longing to get out. It's trying to find something to worship. And sin takes it and twists it and turns us away from God towards all these other things that are completely unworthy. The only solution to this is to look up. The only solution is to see the transcendent, holy God in all of his glory as the only one who is actually truly worthy of my worship. I have to see him. I have to confess him with my heart. I have to give him all that I am and all that I have because only he is above me. Only he is worthy. The more my heart sees he is worthy, the more I will experience his glory. So it starts by seeing that God is above us, that he is worthy of our worship. But then there's another strand in the psalm that also helps us. Point number two is this. We worship because God is with us. Not only is he above us, but he also is with us, which Might sound like a contradiction, but God's able to do that. In the psalm, he starts off and he says, come into his presence. Right? Now, we know from theology, we know from the rest of the Bible that that God is omnipresent. Right? Meaning that God is everywhere always. Which is just a mind-blowing thing to think about. Right? That God simultaneously exists in every time, in every location, in every generation, in every era past, present, future. He's in all of it all the time. And yet, the Bible also speaks about him drawing near to us, near to his people, and his presence coming down to meet with his people in unique ways. And we call that manifest presence. When God chooses to come down and meet and move in his people in a unique, specific way, And in that moment, you get to experience the life-changing glory of God. And we see this all throughout the Bible. I'll just give you a few examples. Moses at the burning bush. God's manifest presence comes down and speaks to him in this experience. And then you have the, the Israelites as they're going through the wilderness, headed to the promised land. God comes down and he leads them by a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. That was his manifest presence leading his people forward. When they build the tabernacle, when they build the temple, both instances separately, God's manifest presence comes down in a cloud and hovers over that place of worship to fill it with his manifest presence to meet with his people. We go, even as the Israelites mess up and get kicked out and they end up in exile, you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. What happens? Fourth guy shows up, presence of God, protecting them, saving their lives. New Testament, Jesus' baptism, sky opens up, God's voice comes down, the Spirit comes down and descends on him, God's manifest presence coming and being with Christ in that moment of baptism. Pentecost, all the disciples are huddled in the room waiting for the Lord to send them out and God's manifest presence comes down and fills the room and they're emboldened with the gospel and they go out speaking and thousands and thousands of people are saved. 
Over and over and over again, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout Acts, we see the church being filled with the manifest presence of God and then going out and preaching and worshiping and serving and doing remarkable things because God's presence was with them. And that's what this psalm is talking about. He says, come. He's inviting us. He's calling us, like, come into his presence, which tells me that there, there's an opportunity here for us to meet with God and to experience his manifest presence, but we have to pursue that. God will not force that upon us. It will not just automatically happen because you're a Christian. There's something that we have to do in order to come into the manifest presence of God. It requires actively seeking and engaging with him. One verse I find helpful for this in the New Testament is James 4.8. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's a promise in that, right? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then James tells us how to draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So again, there's that invitation. Come, draw near. Come meet with God personally and corporately. And to do that, the first thing you have to do is cleanse your hands. Repent of whatever sin you have committed. And then purify your hearts. Don't just repent of the outward sin, but repent of the inward sin and let the Holy Spirit come and cleanse you and forgive you so there's nothing blocking that presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Showing a contrast there. That the person who is double-minded, who's trying to worship God, but also worship some other things, they don't get into the presence of God. They don't get to draw near. It requires forsaking what all these other things that want our worship and worshiping God alone. That's how we draw near. And if we do that, he will draw near to you. His manifest presence will come down and fill your life and fill your church and fill your family. Fill your marriage. This is what we want, right? This is what we need. This is what we are seeking. God's manifest presence in our lives. And I say our because look at the language that the psalm uses. All throughout the psalm, he uses words like us and our and we. Ten times the psalmist uses the plural pronoun to describe how we should worship. Now, to be sure, you've heard us preach on this before if you've been around long. Worship is not restricted to Sunday mornings. Right? This isn't the only time we worship when we get together. Worship should be a lifestyle where every moment of every day we are giving everything we have to say that God is worthy. But there's also several places in the Bible that talks about the importance of corporate worship. Of us coming together in the presence of God. And that's what this psalm is zeroing in on here. Because public worship, corporate worship, matters to God. And therefore, it should matter to us. There's something special. There's something different. There's something powerful when God's people worship together. Right? I hope you experience that here at Harvest on a regular basis, hopefully every Sunday. There's something special when the people of God come together and join in a collective confession of God's glory and his praise and sitting underneath his word and his goodness. It just hits different doing it together. 
than doing it alone. You know, I, I was thinking, trying to think of an analogy for this. I, I, this is probably imperfect depending on your personality and your family, but like we all need that moment where like we need some time alone, right? Like, like y'all are too much, right? Like I need to get like a breath here, right? And it's good to have time alone sometimes. It's good to have even maybe with a small group at times, but there is something different when the whole family gets together, right? Like there's just a, it's just a different level of connectivity and relationship, like something's just different about that. The same thing is true with the family of God, with our church family. It's different when we can all come together, when we sing together, when we pray together, when we learn together, when we repent together, when we walk together in life. Something happens that is greater than any one of us can accomplish on our own. You see, when we worship together in unity with each other, the Spirit of God's glory and worship is amplified in greater ways than we can ever achieve by ourselves. So I I just want to encourage you, because this is something I think we're struggling with a lot right now in our culture. Do not buy into the individualistic lie of our culture or of the enemy that says your faith, following Jesus, is just about you and Jesus. You don't need anybody else. You can do it by yourself. You can do it at home alone. You can do it through a TV screen or computer screen. You're good. That is a lie. It's a lie from Satan, and it's a lie that our culture embraces because we love to do our own thing, and nobody tells me what to do. And it's hurting the worship of God in our lives and in our church. God never designed us to function that way. Not as humans, not as disciples, not as the church. We are called to worship him together. And I think we've seen this on full display, this contrast for the last couple of years coming through this pandemic. Right, early on, we had that time where we had to do some social distancing and everybody had to worship online for a couple of months. And that was... <laughs> but coming out of that... I saw two groups develop in the church. There were those, some of us, who longed to return to corporate worship. Like we couldn't wait to get back with the people of God in the room worshiping together. Because singing and responding and whatever with a computer screen, like it's just not the same. Right? It just doesn't work. And we longed to get back. But there's another group of us that somehow in that time allowed our hearts to kind of settle into this comfortable posture of isolation where it just became easier to just stay home and do it myself and I I kind of even liked the independence of getting to choose when I was going to worship or how I was going to do it or when I was going to watch or when I how I I, I like this part but I'm, I'm going to tune in for this part not that part or whatever the thing was We became enticed by the increased convenience and control of doing worship alone. And we settled for just occasional connection with other people, other believers. Because honestly, it gave us more freedom to do what we wanted to do and less accountability to anybody else in the church family. And that slipped into a rhythm of worship that honestly is more centered around us than it is around the Lord. 
And so now maybe the habit is one, maybe two Sundays a month, we'll actually make it to church. And the rest of the time, we'll just figure out how to kind of work it around our other scheduled stuff. And when we do that, we are losing out on the full experience that God has designed for his manifest presence to come down and meet with his corporate people. Not only are we missing out on his presence, but we are also stealing worship from God that he deserves in the process. The psalmist says, let us, let us together come into his presence. And then he tells us what that worship should look like. He says, sing, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Singing and music have always had a prominent place in the worship of God because they allow for a a special expression of the heart that you really just don't get any other way. And we see this not just in church, we see this in all of life, right? We put music in all of like these variety of moments because it creates and it connects us with emotion. You have music at weddings and you have music at funerals. (laughs) Like polar opposite events, and yet music is used in both because it connects the heart to what's going on. Think about when you watch a movie, right? You, you, most of time you don't even notice it, but there's constantly music playing under movie scenes to rouse your emotions and to rouse your heart into whatever is going on. Advertising uses this to push us because it does something to connect us in a way that words alone don't do. Parties, celebrations, we always have music because it's It creates a vibe, right, where we're there to celebrate. Music taps into the heart, into our emotions like nothing else does. And musical worship, musical worship is a uniquely human process. No other part of creation gets to do that. It's just us. God gave us this little special gift where we get to worship him through song because We're in the image of the master creator. And all throughout scripture, again, we see people's, this is their natural response to wanting to worship God. Like I think about, if you go back to creation, when God creates Adam, and he's like, all right, this ain't going to work. You need somebody. And so then he creates Eve, right? And when Adam sees Eve for the first time, what does he do? He busts out into song. It's like like a full-on musical in Genesis, Right? He starts singing about her beauty and the gift that she is from the Lord to him because he was so overcome with joy and thankfulness to the Lord. His natural response was music. When the Israelites are delivered through the Red Sea and they're finally safe over on the other side, what happens? Moses and Miriam just bust out into song and start leading the people in musical worship to God for what he's done. Think about Jesus' birth, or actually the announcement of Jesus' birth. Just knowing that he's coming fills Mary with such joy that she writes one of the most beautiful worship songs that has ever been written. It just flows out of her. Even God himself shows his heart for us through song. Zephaniah 3.17, that's a book in the Bible, by the way. If some of y'all, that's a new one for some of you. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
yeah. Right? It matters. The whole book of Psalms is a song book. It, it was a worship book for the Hebrew people, and it shows every level of emotion. It shows every situation, showing us that we can worship God no matter what we're going through. Now, I know sometimes people in church struggle to engage with musical worship for various reasons, right? I get it. We're all different personalities, different backgrounds. You're like, I'm, I'm, I hear people say this all the time. I'm just not a music person. Like that, like that's, I'm just not a music guy. That's just not my thing. And I can understand that, all right? I get it. Not everybody's the same on all that. Preferences, I get it. But here's the deal. You might not be, but God is. God is a music guy. And we're doing it for him, not for us. And I promise you, if you will come with an open heart and an open mind and engage in musical, vertical worship to the Lord, not only will it be giving glory to him, but it will be a blessing to you. It will. And God will grow your heart in that and through that process. So the psalmist says, come, let us worship him, let us sing, make a joyful noise. And then he, did, he uses these kind of descriptors. He says, joyful, praise, and thanksgiving. That's re- those words are repeated again throughout the psalm. So not only are we to worship together, and not only are we to sing, we're supposed to do that with joyful hearts. Right? These words describe an exuberance that is the overflow of a heart that deeply loves and values the Lord above all else. When you truly feel that way about someone, man, it, the joy just comes out of you. And, and interestingly enough, there's a volume that is implied here. <laughs> when it says joyful noise and the word praise, like there's an implied loudness to that because when you are excited about something, you just get loud. We just do. Think about sporting events. Like when you're there and your team's killing it, man, you are cheering and you're yelling and you're, sometimes you're even singing. Like they have all these little songs at the ballpark, right? And everybody sings along because we're there to show joy and exuberance and excitement for what the team is doing. And let me just tell you, God is more worthy than any of that. And so if we can't have that level of joy and excitement and exuberance for the Lord when we worship him, we have missed it, friends. God is worthy of so much more. And then the psalmist includes this last part here that I think is also equally important. He says, let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. And all this joy and all the exuberance of worship, we must not miss why we are doing it. We must not miss who it is that we are worshiping. We must remember that it is the holy, almighty God that is coming in our presence. And we need to worship with a, an honor and a humility and a reverence that is equal to who he is. Again, it's not about us. It's about him. We're submitted to him and to his Holy Spirit. We come worshiping with hearts that cry out, Lord, Lord do what you want to. We just sing a song by that. Do what you want to. Lord, we are here for you. And so the more my heart pursues his presence, the more I will experience his glory. The more my heart pursues his presence, both 
individually and collectively as a people, the more we will experience his presence and his glory in our lives. So we worship because he is above us. We worship because he is with us, because he comes down to meet with us. And then lastly, number three, we worship because God is gracious. Now, here at the end of the psalm, it feels like it kind of takes a, like a hard turn. <laughs> um, but, but, but there's actually something really great in this moment, if you'll catch it. Notice he says, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah and Massa in the wilderness. And so the psalmist, he's reminding us of what happened with the Israelites, right? As God's leading them through, they start to doubt God. And they started complaining about God. And they started ultimately trying to reject God. Like, we'll just go back to Egypt. We're good, right? And he says, they put me to the test. They tried to test God. They tried to test his power and his plan and his provision as if somehow he answered to them instead of the other way around. He said they were a people who go astray in their hearts, meaning they no longer worship God. Instead, they worship themselves. And this is the exact opposite of unashamed adoration. This is the opposite of vertical worship. It's all about me and not about the Lord. And so it says God loathed that generation, meaning he rejected them because of their false worship of other things. He said, they shall not enter my rest. And they didn't. They never got to see the promised land. They never got to go with the Lord to that place of rest. But there's one word that I skipped earlier that's so important for us. Look back at it again. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You see, this passage, it wasn't just for the Israelites. This psalm doesn't just apply to them. It applies to us as well. It applies to everyone who hears the voice of the Lord today. Hebrews 4 quotes this verse to God's church, telling us, like, hey, this wasn't just for them. It's for all of us. It says, today, do not harden your hearts. Do not worship yourself because you will find no rest. You will find no peace by worshiping anything in this life or on this world other than God himself. And we can connect this back to the earlier comments, the earlier statements that the psalmist made when he said, hey, remember, he is the great king above all gods. Right? He's the only one worthy of worship. All the other objects of our worship are fake and false and broken, and they will not bring hope to your life. Only the Lord. He is the rock of our salvation. The rock of our salvation. That language is casting the shadow forward to the one who would one day come when God would come in the flesh as Jesus Christ to the earth to be our salvation, our firm foundation on the rock. This is the gospel. In our natural state, when we are born, we have broken hearts that are broken by sin that long to worship ourselves. 
spend one hour around an infant and tell me they don't worship themselves, right? Like that, that is where we start. We all start with these sinful, broken hearts that want to worship us. It's all about us. And in doing so, we rebel against God, we disobey his word, we reject him and his worship. And because of that, we deserve his wrath. We deserve punishment and hell and death. But God, because he is gracious, came down in the form of Jesus Christ to live a perfect and sinless life and then to go to the cross and die a sinner's death. To give his perfect life to pay for our sinful lives. To stand in our place as the substitute and take the wrath and the death that we deserved. And he went into the grave. And three days later, he rose back to life, proving that he was God, conquering sin and death, and offering us new life, offering us a way forward, offering us a relationship with the God of the universe where we get to know him and be with him and worship him. And if we do so, he promises that we will receive rest. You know, in the, in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about this rock of our salvation, this Jesus. It says this, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, that's worship, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, this is Old Testament now, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, whoever does not harden their heart and worship themselves, but believes and worships Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. And so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus alone has made a way for us to enter into eternal heavenly rest with God the Father. But we have to repent and believe in him and be saved. And God will do it because he is gracious. And so those of us who have experienced that grace of God, who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, who have been saved by Jesus Christ, we come to this place every week again and again and again to worship the God who is gracious to us. And the more my heart rests in his grace, the more I will experience his glory. We come here to rest in the grace of God who has made a way for us. And we worship the one who is worthy. Vertical worship rekindles our hearts for God's glory. Every week we need this, right? We are built for God's glory. We are built to experience it, to long for it. And worship is the vehicle that gets us there. Worship is what brings us into the presence of God. Daily as we walk with him, and then as we gather together on Sundays or any other day of the week, we gather together with the people of God to worship him. 
If you want more of God's glory in your life, you have to seek more of his presence in worship. This is where it starts. And so our job, our goal here at Harvest is every week, all the time, every time we gather, is to come and to lift high the name of Jesus in worship. Because he alone, Jesus alone, is worthy. Stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning. We thank you, God, again, just for this opportunity to come and worship. Lord, that every week you are so faithful to come and to meet with us, Lord, for your presence to come down and fill our hearts and fill this place. Heavenly Father, let us never take that for granted. Lord, we want to confess over and over again that you alone are worthy of our worship. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us to worship you. Thank you for drawing near to us and bringing down your manifest presence to show us your glory, to move in our hearts. Lord, we want nothing more than to lift high the name of Jesus every moment, every day. Jesus, we Praise your name, you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.